Nothing discussed with Nancy Creedman in this conversation is meant to diagnose or treat any condition, or takes the place of talking with your own healthcare professionals. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to another conversation to take us from anxiety to clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich from Sutter Health Kahimohala, and this project is a really heartfelt one that is a a real attempt by several of us, myself and my colleague, Trisha Kajimura at Sutter Health Kahimohala, and Evan Leung at Brain Gain Hawaii, including his son, Coco. We've all been trying to create conversations on, on, with an informal basis to, to take us from this great anxiety that many of us have been feeling over time to some point of clarity, to be able to understand where we are in, in the world of COVID and where we can go and to be able to have some insights that might make it a little easier. So we know where we are this week. We have seen weeks now of triple digit daily counts. We've also seen the highest count that we've had in this past week with over 300 cases. And it's getting very difficult for a lot of people to deal with the unknown of what all of this is about to deal with the fact that there is seemingly no end in sight and in fact that we may see a return to the stay-at-home order because people are simply not listening to the protocols or following the protocols that have been out there for some time and there's so much fatigue with all of this. So with that we're going to take a different slant today and look at what all of this means in the world of domestic violence and to join us we have the executive director of the Domestic Violence Action Center, Nancy Creedman, who has been a longtime friend and a longtime advocate and someone who has really the bead on what is happening with domestic violence, whether we're dealing in the world of COVID or not, but expressly with what we've been seeing happen in the last little while. And a great concern is we're now talking about potentially releasing inmates because of COVID and because of the cases in this last week, especially that we have seen there. So Nancy, thank you so much for making time to have this informal conversation as we've been having for now with so many people over uh, the last 18 weeks or so to just make it from my living room to your living room and for us to informally talk about a very, very difficult subject and one that certainly has been driving your life professionally and personally for such a long time. So thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for inviting us to participate in the conversation. It's a very, very important conversation. We've seen domestic violence in the general sense, but with now the overlay of COVID, what has changed in the last five, six months for DVAC, aside from the fact that you have some really wonderful commercials that have been airing and and they're really beautiful spots making the point over and over again about what women need and the fact that you are there, but what have you been seeing when you've been talking to your clients that may or may not be different given the overlay of COVID? Well, uh, when you are being uh, instructed to stay at home with your abuser, uh, you are effectively uh, turned into a prisoner of your abuser which uh, intensifies uh, the risk, the torment, and uh, the danger, and um, leaves very little room to 
who um, explore avenues for escape, support, safety, and peace of mind. Um, the Domestic Violence Action Center did a number of things very early on uh, when the stay-at-home directive was put into place because um, we recognized uh, instantly that a person who needs help would not be able to place a telephone call with an abuser standing by or in the next room. So we added a text feature and a chat feature to our communication vehicles. And uh, the steady stream of texts and chats and visits to our website uh, has demonstrated that that was a very good first step for us in terms of reaching out to the community. Uh, the other thing we made a big commitment uh, to do was to let the community of survivors know that we know they're being hurt at home and that there is help. Because the, uh, the general sensibility is everything is shutting down. And we wanted people to know that the Domestic Violence Action Center was uh, in full operation and available to help. Now, I think so, in many ways, wrapping up, uh, which is very different from what we saw happen with a lot of other agencies that, that had to, because of whatever the nature was that they, they did, uh, were, were shutting down. So as you expanded your services, and actually as we saw a lot of these spots come on television showing people, women who had been in domestically violent situations and had come out the other end, how much difference did you see in, in the response to not only just the spots, but the fact that you had created so many other channels for, for women to be able to reach out to you? Well, um, the whole idea of seeking help um, is, it's not an event, it's not a one-time act, whether it's you know, texting or chatting or making a telephone call, it's really a process. Um, and so uh, everybody is a in a different place on their path to escape or safety or decision-making. And so we really just see ourselves as being foundational to uh, that process and to that decision-making. Um, we had a woman, uh, I don't know, about 10 days ago or so, send us a chat and tell us that she had been to our website 10 times before she sent a message. And um, it's our understanding and our experience that not everybody acts at the same moment or would, or, or are, nor are they facing the same set of circumstances. So it's not like we saw an immediate and absolute um, overwhelming number of requests for help. We think this is going to be a steady drumbeat and in fact, uh, maybe early next year, we're going to see a landslide because when things return to some kind of normalcy, people are going to run out of their houses saying, he almost killed me. My children are terrorized. We can't live like this anymore. In the meantime, the options have shrunk. There are very few uh, ways to escape or get safe. There's no affordable housing, there's no childcare, there's no school, there's no job opportunities. Where's the person gonna go? So some of the work we're doing is safety planning with people who are uh, in the presence of their abuser. 
what kinds of things can they do to stay safe while they're at home? That's key. Key and, and in some ways a little different than and how you were operating before because there might have been a placement for someone or to be able to get away. And now, as you say, that's simply not possible. So how do you plan for someone's safety in a highly dangerous situation? And what you talk about in terms of what may happen when hopefully all of this comes to a successful conclusion and we're able to have some normalcy back in our lives that you expect to see this wave, which very much tracks with what the mental health community believes that it's going to be seeing in lots of other ways too, because people will suddenly feel that it's okay and that there's going to be far more ways in which they can exhale and this may be one of them. Right. How yeah. do you tell a woman though, who is in a situation that's so dangerous with children and an abuser, how do you tell her to be able to walk through this time when there's so much unknown and, and there's so much pain? Mm-hmm. Um, Well, I mean, there's a few very simple uh, tips. Uh, Stay out of the kitchen, for example, where there are um, potentially weapons and knives. Uh, Try not to be in an enclosed space uh, where you're trapped. Um, uh, Don't go into the bathroom where there are hard surfaces or uh, water. Um, Try to, uh, if you can, Uh, put together a small packet of things that if you had to run, you could run. Uh, Maybe develop a code with a a friend or a family member or an ally that you could use if you're really in danger um, that you wouldn't otherwise have in place. Uh, Like if I said to you, Bethann, I'm not sure uh, how safe or Uh, how much danger I'm in. When I say the word blue to you, I want you to drive by my house. Uh, So there's a code between us and you'll drive by my house. Maybe you'll knock on the door. Maybe you'll call the police. If I say blue twice, that means call the police. If if I say blue once, come over and knock on the door to just interrupt what's going on, making making a visit. Um, Trying to diffuse it a little bit, perhaps. Trying to diffuse it a little bit, yeah. If you have any concerns about anybody in your life, um, make sure to reach out to them. Uh, Usually we try to stay out of other people's businesses or think it's not our business or think that um, it could ruin our friendship or interfere with our friendship. Um, I would say suspend uh, those beliefs and uh, reach out to somebody and say, you know, I just want you to know I'm here for you. Um, using a careful language because you don't know if you're being overheard. Um, there's a, you know, a bunch of different things that uh, we are trying to invent along the way as well. And domestic violence programs across the country and across the world are doing the very same thing. Um, these are uh, you know, unfamiliar challenges. And so we have to use what we know and employ what we've experienced into this new set of circumstances. And that's, that's what we're doing. Um, that's why As we're running so many public service announcements and trying to respond to all invitations to participate in community dialogue. And um, 
At the very beginning of this, uh, when we were uh, listening to our leaders, our elected leaders and our community leaders talking about the consequences of uh, the coronavirus, nobody said domestic violence was a consequence of the coronavirus. So I uh, started- mental health, frankly. Yeah. Uh, I started um, contacting the governor's office, lieutenant governor's office, the attorney general's office, the mayor's office, um, our legislators, the COVID task forces, our uh, cabinet members to say, please use the words domestic violence so that the community knows that you're aware that domestic violence is in fact a consequence of the coronavirus, in addition to uh, lack of food and uh, lack of housing. And um, so the impacts on mental health and uh, danger are real. We tend to see that everyone is moving toward the, the physical elements of all of this, the food, mm. the housing, the unemployment, all of that. And yes, to talk about the, you know, the worry over those things, but still, right. even at this date, not a lot of conversation about right. the, the socio-emotional and, and mental challenges right. that people have because of what's happening with the pandemic. And I, I listen to a lot of calls and, and audit a lot of meetings. And unless you're specifically in the world of, of mental health, where that's the driver, it seems like there's still the reticence to be able to include that and to have it be as equal a challenge as it is for people to find the, you know, shelter and, and, and food mm -hmm. and carry on with their lives. And that just seems to replay the duality that we've seen for a very long time where everyone was talking about health in the very physical sense, but not taking into consideration mental health. And then we saw sort of a, a bit of a glimmer with mental health being talked about quite a bit. And then sort of back to, you know, especially the worst things became with the, the case counts, back again to talking only or specifically about the physical elements. How do you think we can, we can change that now to be able to have it be more than just a moment for mental health or, or domestic violence in the context of mental health? I mean, I think, I mean, for us, uh, we just have to do what we've been doing, which is insist that there's recognition that domestic violence is a problem of enormous uh, proportion with life-altering uh, effects and um, ignoring it or minimizing it uh, is at our peril. And uh, we just have to keep uh, raising our voices and um, accepting invitations to talk about it and encouraging other people to talk about it. Um, I mean, I was astonished uh, to hear the uh, chief of police say that domestic violence had not increased. I mean, that's an impossible um, calculation. I mean, the uh, Surgeon General and the Secretary General of the UN came out very early on uh, uplifting the attention to the rise in domestic violence across the planet. It's impossible that that would not be occurring here. So we really need um, everybody's willingness um, if we care about and are committed to uh, island families. You preempted the question I was going to ask you next, which was about 
HPD because I realized that there were times when you were offering trainings to them and that there was some, what we thought, you know, inroads happening there and those who really began to understand it well and that we thought maybe this, this might be a breakthrough point. What has happened to make the chief say something as she did, that it wasn't an issue? Uh, what, what do you think is going on there with HPD that this suddenly has been in some ways, you know, skirted to the side or, or sequestered? You know, I, I wouldn't even venture a guess. I, I, I really have no, uh, no way to understand um, why they would not be alarmed at the potential, at the very least, for domestic violence to occur. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I really don't even know how to, how to guess. It's a tough one for a lot of people because that's very often, you know, the, the gateway. HPD might show up and there might actually be a way of, of finding a route out in many different ways. But uh, having heard that there are sometimes just the gate is closed, even when HPD shows up or turning a blind eye. And these are conversations that I know you and I have been having for a very, very long time. In other words, circumstances really haven't changed, but the people haven't changed either to be able to successfully deal with those circumstances to the peril of a great many families, and in particular to women. So as we're looking at this now, it's, it's now the, the middle of August. We don't know what the rest of this year may look like, looking at, at school trying to start. Uh, at least the, the complaint by HSTA has been dropped as of today, but who knows how all these families are going to try to move forward with children who are, are in school or who are going to need to have access to online, which means that someone's going to be seeing them. Is that a good thing that you might actually have that line into someone in a home for a, a you know, certain period of time every single day for a family? Is that a helpful? It's an excellent thing. I mean, when uh, children... I mean, one of the one of the things that's sort of a saving grace for uh, survivors and their children is when the abuser goes to work, or when uh, she goes to work, or when the children go to school. There's a, sort of a, a rest from the torment, the verbal abuse, the uh, psychological uh, gaslighting. All of those things uh, just become dormant for the period of time when they're not in each other's presence. So um, there was a great deal of concern about uh, the dangers uh, posed for children who were not seeing teachers or supportive adults. Um, I mean, we just uh, have not done, uh, in, in my estimation, we have not done a good job of um, naming the problem acknowledging the risk and putting into place uh, sufficient avenues for support during these times for families who are experiencing domestic violence. I mean, I don't know how to say that any, you know, any other any way. Any more plainly, right. And, yeah. and, and, and it's the same message that if we could have replayed a conversation that we had 20 years ago, right. I think you would have said almost identically what you just said a moment ago. So. Yeah. How, 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 how is the big question that we've been grappling with or trying to grapple with? How do we make this thing 
that we know is so dangerous for children, that we know is so dangerous for families, and that those people who are in their periphery too, I mean, the everything from you know teachers to friends to other family members, sometimes people are trying to keep them together and say things, oh, but he's a good man, or uh, you know, he provides so well for the family, because this is not striking a certain socioeconomic strata. It's throughout all of society, which is what a lot of people don't really want to, to name because they can't be like this if they're from a good family. Um, right. And that's a big myth that needs to still have a, a gigantic pin put into it so it will, it will finally pop and people will understand, um, especially at this time when we have so many children and families dealing with the effects of, of COVID in all ways, and then to have this one be the bedrock of all of that. Is there anything that you would want to have everybody else be willing to do, like to be Snoopy, to, to you know, inquire a little bit more without putting somebody at risk, um, mm -hmm. to take a risk and, you know, personally and ask, are, are you really, really okay? I'm noticing mm -hmm. that. I mean, anything right. that, you know, right. a lot of people here, especially feel, as you told me a while ago and, and, and certainly have said for years that here in, in our, in the culture here, as it's developed, there's this sense of, I shouldn't mix in. It's not my business. Um, I, you know, I shouldn't say anything, but are we, are we actually getting the point that we have to say something that we need to say something, especially because of what COVID has brought to us? Is this an opportunity, I guess, is what I'm saying? This is clearly an opportunity. And I think we have to keep um, reiterating uh, that it's essential and give people permission to talk about it, to inquire about it, to offer support in response to it. I mean, again, at the beginning of the... Um, coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, I, all of my messaging was, if you have ever suspected someone you know, or if you have ever detected a red flag, now is the time to communicate with that person. You don't have to use all the words or put them on the spot. Just let them know that you're there. Let them know that you're available. Let them know that you're interested. Let them know that you're concerned. And that you are a, uh, an audience for them should they need you. Um, because people are very reluctant to admit that they're being a victim of domestic violence. People have been uh, uh, told that it's their fault. Um, they're ashamed of what is going exactly. on. Uh, sharing any of your own personal intimate partner uh, details is not easy to do. And particularly if they in any way reflect on you, you've been told and badgered and uh, repeatedly that it's your fault that this is happening. If you were only this, or you were only better at that, or you didn't do this, I wouldn't resort to this. And after a certain point, you um, embody that message. And so it's very difficult to admit um, or ask for help or um, name what you think is occurring in your, in your partnership. We have gotten a lot of texts and chats uh, from people saying, you know, I think I'm in an abusive uh, relationship. I, I, I can't live with the uh, verbal abuse anymore. I can't um, 
tolerate my children having to live with this amount of tension. He's never hit me before, um, but now I'm worried that he might. Um, I've always just kind of, you know, dismissed the um, the yelling and the verbal abuse, but I, I'm, I'm being um, so tormented now and I'm being um, kind of badgered with it repeatedly and uh, continuously, and I don't know what to do. What should I do? So that kind of, um, you know, lack of understanding in the community that it doesn't mean a person has a broken bone or a black eye or a bruise. It could be your heart is bruised or your spirit is bruised. Um, and we need to support them just as much as anybody who's going to be admitted to the hospital for an injury. That's an injury. Nancy, it's Yes. And, and, and Nancy, I would ask you too, is this something that you have seen change generationally? Are you seeing women come to you now or chatting with you who are from you know, various different generations? And has that changed from perhaps the way it was pre-COVID because of you know, the effects of the pandemic and being in the space with someone even more than they might have been if someone were going to work or, or going out of the house for other reasons? I'm not sure I understand understand your question um, well just just that are you seeing various generations reaching out to you as opposed to say you know women with kids uh, could um, there be older women too is this affecting them yeah. and you know yes. is, is this going through the generations not just being you know directed toward women who are you know maybe young marrieds or women and young families but uh, you know older women too who suddenly find themselves much more uh, you know, afraid because they're in the presence of their, uh, their intimate partner far more and things might have accelerated to the point where maybe they would also feel comfortable to reach out and maybe they're not as comfortable with, you know, with chatting or with sending a text, although I know many women of many generations do that. I mean, my mother, we know, is the, the, she, sends, she sends you a, a, a text that should be an email because it's five inches long. But my point is that when you're looking at all of this, are you seeing a change in how women in different generations are responding to your message or to the understanding that they need help? I think, um, I mean, we have always known that uh, domestic violence uh, does not discriminate and occurs across age groups, professional uh, levels, uh, educational levels, um, uh, cultural groups, religious um, um, believers. Um, I think, I mean, we can't tell exactly from our anonymous uh, chats and texts how um, old people are or what socioeconomic group they're in. Um, I do want to say that uh, as I sort of peruse the chats and skim the information mm -hmm. that we're uh, being asked that some of the people are saying, I've been living with this for a long time. I can't live with it any longer. I'm not sure whether that means they um, entered the relationship at 22 and now they're 29, or uh, they uh, have been in the relationship for 25 years. It, it's a little hard to tell. Um, but we know that this uh, crosses all age groups. 
And then clearly at this point, this may be the breaking point for a lot of the people who are reaching out to you because they are now in the bubble with, with the same person that they're deeply afraid of. Right. It's tough when you find out that it's in your own family and that you may have been blind to it. I think a lot of people uh, don't have to look very far to see that there may be someone in their family or circle of friends who, oh, who, you know, who, who might be, in fact, an abuser. Uh, you, you know this story that um, you know, it wasn't until after one of my uncles died that my aunt actually told us what an abuser he was. And the fact that this man had all kinds of degrees and a scholar and a wonderful person and all the wonderful things that we all thought about him. And it was a shock. And I can remember that some reaction at the very beginning was, I wonder if she's just, you know, could this be something that was, was just more in her mind than his? I mean, there were some of those reactions of, of disbelief and wanting to look at her and think maybe she had just, you know, augmented a few memories or something. And then too many things spilled out that began to say, no, it wasn't in fact just selective memory, but this was, you know, ongoing. And that for 40 years, nobody really knew. Nobody knew. Right. Uh, right. Or were, or maybe were willing to do something about it. I mean, the, it's, it continues to be astonishing to me, the degree to which we as a community minimize the seriousness of situations or dismiss or uh, attribute responsibility to the victim. Um, that's a way that we as a community cope. Because if we were to look at this squarely in the face, we would have to do something. We would have to act. And um, I can't really explain why uh, there's so little conviction about acting. Um, I just uh, sort of reflect back on um, an observation and a um, um, assertion that John Lewis uttered about this is not one day, one week, one year. Uh, this is a lifetime. And uh, for me, that is uh, the only way I can cope with the overwhelm overwhelming challenge that I have been doing this uh, work for 30 years now, 35 years. And um, of course, I've seen many, many changes. And uh, I'm immobilized by uh, the lack of conviction by the community as a whole, because we know so much more about this problem than we did 35 years ago or 10 years ago. And uh, my, my fantasy is that it would mobilize us to act in ways that are in the best exactly. interest of, of, of families. Um, safe families are at the core of a healthy community. We give a lot of lip service um, as leaders and community members to our commitment to families, but really we have to drill down and see and um, invest in families in real ways, all families, those families who are tormented by domestic violence and mental health challenges. And for some reason, we don't have the courage or the conviction to do that. A couple of things that that, that makes me think about is that first of all, there are so many people who may in fact have a suspicion that this is in their family 
And so yeah. if they start to come out and talk about it, maybe they're going to risk something within their own family or friend circle, and maybe they're not necessarily willing to do that. And also sometimes because as we know, if we say something long enough, people will believe it. And we Keiki and Ohana ourselves almost you know, to, to the point where we believe that all of this is so wonderful and Hawaii is such a great place for families and for you know, everyone to feel this great sense of, of warmth and aloha and caring when in fact the, there's this underbelly that many are unwilling to really look at. Um, at this point, when I know you've been talking to the governor and to the, to the lieutenant governor and to anybody else who will listen to you from the, you know, the COVID committees and everything else, um, what would you ask of the rest of us right now to do that so that we don't lose this moment to include domestic violence and how our COVID-19 response should be? Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you for the question. I, I, what I want is I want everybody to talk about domestic violence uh, at every opportunity they have. I know people are going fewer places, but people are still going places. Um, talk about, use the words domestic violence, notice the red flags and name them. I mean, if we as a community don't lift the veil, we are not taking any steps forward and we are contributing to people's suffering. Um, so I just want people to uh, know uh, and believe that this is a problem happening behind closed doors and uh, their gift to their family member or their friend or their coworker or their colleague or their church congregant um, is to let them know that this is a problem they're concerned about. Do you know anybody who uh, you suspect is experiencing domestic violence? Just ask the questions. Because even if um, uh, people are uncomfortable, here's the other thing. Everybody doesn't have to be an expert. Sometimes people don't want to talk about domestic violence because they're like, well, what if she says yes? Then what do I do? Uh, there are resources who can step in when um, help is needed. All you have to do is uh, make a connection. All yeah, you have to do- You're the conduit. Yeah, use the words, name the problem, and then send them on. Let them know that there are resources and those resources are available and capable of providing support. Um, if you don't want to uh, face someone directly or um, uh, express the issue directly, Ask a general question. Do you know anybody who might be experiencing domestic violence? And maybe that person will see it as an opportunity and an invitation and say, you know, I've been thinking about that in my own relationship. I, I think that my partner is controlling me. I can't make telephone calls the way I'd like to, or I can't exercise, uh, go for a walk the way I'd like to. You think that's a form of control that, um, is uh, beyond uh, concerns for my well-being. I mean, everybody has a different way of using the language and using the vocabulary, but if we use the words and we lean into it, which is what we have to do, um, it'll be uh, remarkable what surfaces when we lean into it. We have to lean into it. Otherwise, I mean, the whole principle of do no harm, 
by ignoring this, we're doing great harm. Nancy, is there anything else that you think that we have not noticed about domestic violence in this time of COVID-19 and pandemic that's obviously not going to end anytime soon. Is there anything more that you think that people should know or don't know or you'd like them to know aside from everything that we've talked about today? Um, you know, I think mostly we want to um, shine the light, keep the conversation um, active about the issue. We don't want it to recede into the background uh, where it usually lives because these are unusual times. Uh, we must rise uh, to the challenge. Um, obviously, the long-term impacts of the coronavirus um, for the economics of the community and for the landscape in the community are gonna be uh, long-lasting. So are the impacts of domestic violence on the community going to be long-lasting. Um, this is a uh, life-altering experience that we're sharing together. And I'd like uh, to believe that uh, we can uh, rise up and step up to the, to the challenges rather than uh, uh, turn away from them. Thank you, Nancy, for the time this morning and for all of these years shining a light on a very, very dark corner that very few people really wanted to look at and for allowing many of us to look at it more deeply and to understand how pervasive this is and how yeah. necessary we all are to be able to really combat it because it's going to take an army of us to be able to do that. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Yeah, you do yeah, such a wonderful job. We're, we're, we're happy. We're happy to be here. We're happy to be of service. Really. It's going to take all of us. Uh, this issue, this problem, this challenge uh, is much bigger than the domestic violence action center. There's a role for everybody to play. And what I'm saying is please join us in uh, addressing the problem of domestic violence. Thank you so much. And for all of you who joined us today, thank you for being here. We'll be back with you for another conversation from Anxiety to Clarity next week. And if you have a question or a comment or a topic that you think that we should tackle, please let me know. You can email me at KozlovB, that's K-O-Z as in zebra, L-O-V as in Victor, B as in boy, at SutterHealth.com. Org. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. I will see you next time from Anxiety to Clarity.